Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings one, greetings all. I'm Ray Harkins. You're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. What's happening? I hope you were doing well this evening or this morning, whenever you're listening to this. I hope the day is treating you appropriately well because, you know, people say that all the time. Like, you know, hope you have a good day, but like, you should mean it. You should really mean it. Like, I hope you have a good day. So anyways, just trying to put some positivity in your life, you know, because I think everybody needs that. We have a rad, rad chat this week with none other than Tim McMahon. He played and was the vocalist in bands like Mouthpiece and Hands Tied, Face the Enemy. He did he did and has done a lot of cool stuff. And he also ran a website for many, many years called Double Cross, where he had a lot of interviews specifically focused on kind of the you know, quote unquote old school hardcore. But uh, Mouthpiece was a huge band for me because uh, between them and Unbroken, they were the bands that kind of introduced me to the idea that you could be singing about something uh, more emotional in context. Like you're not talking about, you know, sort of situational stuff where it's like, oh, my friends betrayed me or whatever. It's like some real emotional soul searching stuff that, you know, doesn't necessarily have an answer per se, but they begged the question. And Mouthpiece was one of those bands for me. So uh, I was really excited to have Tim on the show because he's kind of, you know, circled around the podcast for a while. Him and I have emailed and corresponded where he was like, you know, dude, I love this interview you did with that person. And I was like, you know what, Tim, it's about time that I have you on. So that's what we did. And it's exciting. First of all, you're nice and you're going to review the show. Please go to Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Overcast, Himalaya, wherever it is you listen to this particular podcast, and you will be able to leave just, you know, little couple sentence review, or if you want to take like two seconds out of your day, do just, you know, give it whatever you feel is appropriate from a star perspective. You know, if you're like the show's trash, one star, you know, maybe don't do that. (laughs) I'd maybe like a little bit higher ranking, but regardless, I would love for you to do that. And I'd also love to hear from you. I'm talking to you. 100 words podcast at gmail.com is the email. And uh, I would appreciate both of those things because, uh, yeah, that's kind of what keeps the show flowing, going, giving me inspiration and ideas that knowing that, uh, you know, I see people are listening to this thing, but sometimes when I put out an episode and I don't get any feedback, I'm just like, well, maybe I'm shouting into the ether. <laughs> but, anyways, uh, I am in. New York City right now as we speak because I am actually going to be playing well technically not New York City right at this moment but I put this out on a Wednesday I am flying out that particular night to Philadelphia where we play a Taken plays a show on the 9th or actually the 8th which is Friday in Philadelphia at the Bowery with some great bands like State Faults and Gatherers and uh, then the next night we play with those great bands again in Brooklyn New York it's a Saturday night 11-9 come out 
Because if you listen to this show, I can't tell you the next time that I am going to be like in that vicinity from a show playing perspective. So both Philly and New York City, please come out. I'd love to hang out. And they're with great bands too. So it'll be a, it'll be a fun time. And uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. This is my, you know, I guess my space to get out the sort of like mental health scenario that I've been kind of filling all of you in on. And honestly, I've gotten such positive feedback from so many of you in regards to, uh, you know, your my discussion of what I'm going through is helping other people maybe take action in their own lives. And uh, it's great. I actually did something pretty, pretty interesting this week at my therapist's office. She also does this thing called like a neural, neural feedback, if I'm not mistaken, where it's a small, really, really, really small jolt to the brain where it's like a 10 volt battery. And uh, she did this thing where, you know, she kind of walked me through it and uh, it was really, really interesting because uh, yeah, I kind of felt this, this, you know, sense of calm where it's like, you know, cause your, your brain, obviously when you're kind of in the state that uh, I'm in currently where it's like, I feel like a raw nerve. And, uh, she was able to kind of, you know, just suggest to my brain, like, Hey, calm down. Like everything's okay. Let's smooth you out. Let's even you out. And so it was really interesting. And, um, I haven't felt any side effects in regards to the, um, medication I'm taking like Lexapro. Um, so that's been interesting. Uh, I've been sleeping a little bit better recently, which is awesome because when you don't sleep, dude, you feel like the world is like falling down around you. You're just like, I can't, I can't do anything. Um, you know, I'm kind of trying to like exist in the world, but you feel like you're just floating. So now that I'm beginning a little more sleep, it feels really, really good. So thank you very much. And, uh, I appreciate you, you know, listening because that this is like my space. I, you know, I'm able to express it to other people like my wife and my therapist and, you know, family and friends, but, uh, you know, I want to make sure that you're updated as well. So anyways, like I said, Tim McMahon, great guest. We talked for a very long time and, uh, cause he, he's just incredibly prolific when it comes to all of his involvement in hardcore and, uh, just how much he cares about it. And I love people like that. So here's Tim. Let's talk to him. I was, uh, I mean, I'm 38, so I got into, you know, the core around 15 or 16, like many of us do. Um, uh-huh. but being from Southern California, you know, new age and, you know, ignite and all that stuff loomed really large yeah. as far as the introduction to this stuff was concerned. Uh, mouthpiece resonated with me pretty deeply, not only, you know, aesthetically because, you know, you guys were doing what you were doing, um, <laughs> as far as the right. traditional hardcore was concerned. Oh yeah. Yeah, Exactly. But the uh, the twist was the fact that you know you uh, actually spoke about your emotions and uh, mm-hmm. how how they related to your life. Um, uh-huh. I'm gonna guess that, and this is me just kind of you know playing uh, detective here. Yeah, yeah, there were people who were critical of you guys because of that. I'm sure there were obviously just as many people like myself who it resonated with. But were yeah. there people who were just like? you know what, like, screw that. Like this, you know, you shouldn't mix this, this personal message with this sort of music or did it generally kind of, you know, get people happy about what you were doing? You know, the, the critics, the the most that I can think of as far as critics coming into the picture were when we, not so much when we first started, but as we kind of started, you know, catching a little momentum and, you know, like the, the first seven inch comes out and there was sort of, I don't know, kind of like a hype a little bit, you know, there was, cause when we started out, it was just, 
us and a group of our friends, you know, we were whatever, uh, 15, 16 year old kids and stuff and 15, 16, 17 year old kids. And, you know, our friends would, would come and to every show pretty much. And, uh, no matter when we play, there would always be at least, you know, 10, 15 kids we knew, friends we knew, whatever like that. And that went on for like the first, you know, we started in like 19, so like the first year, like all the shows, and we played a lot of shows at that point was basically made up of our friends. And, you know, we were kind of meeting more kids as we were playing more shows. And, but it was like people that we actually knew. And then at some point, like uh, once the comes out in, in 91, um, and then it's kind of like a new crowd starts to check us out and notice us. And I think that's where the critics started coming into play because um, now they're seeing us and hearing about us. And, you know, they see like the young kids all like stoked about us. So, you know, they're for whatever reason, bitter or angry or, um, you know, what I think a lot of it came from is, is there were slightly older dudes that had already seen um, the straight edge bands kind of come and go from like the eighties and by, you know, the early nineties, 90, a lot of them were, were gone and moved on and were going to college and, you know, um, going to keg parties and all that kind of stuff. And, um, they were looking at us and thinking that we would, um, end up doing the same thing. So, you know, we got a lot of criticism like that. Like, Oh, you guys uh, are all gung ho about straight edge right now, but you'll be out of it in, uh, you know, by the time you go to college, which, you know, we were only like, well, I guess, like I said, we were 15, 16 years old. So, um, you know, we were going to college in, in a year or two, but, um, you know, so people were just trying to predict our future by what they'd seen happen in the past. So there was a lot of, you know, criticisms like that. And when we were starting to do it and, and, you know, kind of, like I said, catching a little momentum and gaining a little popularity, um, there wasn't many bands left like that around anymore. So, um, the kids that were, um, had liked those bands, some of them were just kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of into it, but, uh, just very critical of anybody new coming into the scene, um, which, you know, really isn't, hasn't changed. You know I mean? Yeah. You know, 2019, you know, a new band comes out and, and, you know, people were like, what the hell's this? You know? So, um, you know, I like have heart just did all these huge reunion shows and, you know, you go on social media and you see some of the older people talking like, what the hell is this? I have heart, never even heard of them. You know, like what, what do all these kids care about this for? And, um, you know, so it was the same type of mentality. Um, I, I don't really recall people, um, coming at me about anything, you know, um, lyrically as far as uh, me talking about my feelings or anything like that yeah i don't know if you had heard that or not but i, no. I don't recall anything like that no i just i i i honestly i don't i don't recall anything like that happening i just know yeah. that i mean especially from you know the area in which you guys came up in and there like you said there were a lot of people who you know had opinions on what was happening with the scene and stuff like that sure. so i can imagine the combination of what you were coming to the table with, with, you know, you being straight edge and the message right. and everything and, um, coupling that with something that is not, 
uh, quote unquote traditional that it may have ruffled some of those people's feathers. But an interesting thread I wanted to pull on there was the idea that because at that point there had been, you know, whatever, one or two generations of you know, hardcore at that point, as far as yeah. like, you know, straight edge and stuff. And right. I use the word generations like every four or five years, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely think, you know, the first generation was the minor threat SSD. Uh, and then the second generation was the youth of today. And it kind of goes into, you know, gorilla biscuits judge, um, even, you know, in my mind, even kind of like the wide awakes and sure. know, stuff like that. And, and then I kind of look at ourselves as more like a third generation type of, Right, and you so know, we were we were fans of of you know both of those eras you know that came before us. So. Right, and I, I just didn't consider uh, the idea of like, oh, we've seen this happen before, so we know what's going to happen to you guys. Like that's um, yeah. you know, and I mean now that this has permeated you know some whatever ten or fifteen generations since, like that right. that trope exists. But I can see where you guys would have been you know, at least on the early side of that criticism where it's like, Oh yeah, like you mean it now, but you're not going to mean it in three years. Yeah. Well, there was, um, there's a very specific, uh, song and everything. that's all about that. Um, the song, what remains is the first song on the, what was said LP is, yeah. was actually written solely about, um, a guy, uh, which he totally knows about it. Now his name is Ron little. Um, he sang for a band called rain on the parade. Um, and uh, he had done a, done a fanzine in very early 90s, and it was called Fuck You Fanzine. And it was just like a little newsletter type of thing. Um, but he had a fake name, and it was almost like something you'd find on the internet now. You know, somebody creating a, a, a profile under a fake name and then going off and attacking people and talking all kinds of shit. Well, this was kind of. Um, you know, Ron's version of that in, you know, whatever, 1991, 1992, where he created this little fanzine, um, had a fake name in the fanzine and he sent me a copy of it. Um, and there was this like whole little like article about, uh, you know, mouthpiece. I, I can't remember word for word, but it was something along the lines of mouthpiece, you know, being a bunch of, uh, little kids who are screaming now about straight edge, but in a year from now, they'll be off at college and, and, um, you know, joining frats and, and drinking and all this kind of shit. So, um, I was like, but there was no name attached to it, you know? So I had no idea who this guy was. All I had was like an address cause there was, there was an address in it and it had like, you know, this fake name. So I, I got it and I, I was just so pissed off. You know, I was just like, who the fuck is this? Um, you know, coming at me and claiming they know me. They think they know what I'm about. Um, but this person obviously doesn't know me at all, you know? So I was, you know, coming at it at that sort of issue, um, as a, you know, 16, 17 year old kid, that's how I dealt with it. I remember sitting down in my, uh, lunchroom at my, at that point I had graduated high school. I was in the community college and, uh, I had all these new, you know, all these, um, I was going back and forth with letters with the guy, this guy, Ron, and just, you know, really giving him, um, peace of mind. <laughs> sure. And, and, uh, it, funny thing is like, as we went back and forth, um, he was like, wow, um, maybe Tim's actually pretty cool. And, and, and you know, like everything kind of came together and we, we found this sort of even ground and, um, I ended up meeting him face to face, uh, at a show 
And uh, he actually came back to my girlfriend's house and we hung out and, and we've pretty much been friends ever since. I mean, I haven't seen him in a long time, like many years, but um, I told him like, dude, I wrote these lyrics about you. I was, <laughs> I was pissed off. I was, you know, infuriated about you, you presuming to know what I was about. And, you know, um, you know, here, here we go. Uh, however many years later, uh, almost, almost 30 years later and I'm still straight edge. I never, never joined that frat yeah. and never uh, jumped into any keg party. So, um, he was wrong. Right. <laughs> no, no, that's, that, that that's cool. That's, it's nice to be able to, um, yeah, like, you know, have a, a button on the, the story where it's just like, well, yes, I became friends with this person and like, I yeah. still am who yeah. I was like, cause you, I mean, on the flip side, you can obviously see the fact that it's easy for people to look at kids who claim something when they're 14 and 15, it doesn't even have to be straight oh, sure. edge and be like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. You, this is a trend. You don't, you're, you're not, you don't actually mean this. And right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you know, he, he, nine out of 10 people that he would have wrote that letter to, it probably would have been right. You know, but <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I wasn't one of them. So yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to try to jump around, uh, you know, some sure. of the uh, biographical information just because, uh, you know, you've definitely been able to, uh, you know, do a few interviews over time. Um, mm-hmm. I but, have. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, like born and raised in New Jersey for all intent and purposes. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was born in, in Trenton, Trenton um, and uh, lived, grew up in Ewing Township, which was uh, just a suburb of Trenton. And, um, eventually moved around a little bit, but basically just the towns that surrounded Ewing. Um, I now live in Lawrenceville, which is between Trenton and, uh, Princeton. And, um, yeah, I've, I've been in this whole area, um, my whole life. Sure. And your, uh, your family structure as far as, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, mom and dad in the house. Yeah. Uh, mom and dad, uh, in the house, um, uh, had a, my, my, um, mom had my sister when I was 14. So there was a pretty big, um, uh, space between me and her. Um, so like at the point where my sister was born, I was like a full fledged, like skateboarder, hardcore kid. And, um, didn't really, uh, you know, hang out with my sister a lot cause I was, you know, a teenager and often doing all that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, uh, sister and, uh, yeah, my parents, um, still together now, not divorced or anything like that. Nice. And, uh, pretty normal, uh, suburban neighborhood, um, you know, middle class, uh, family, you know, my dad was a, um, helicopter airplane mechanic at a local airport. Uh, my mother worked for the state. Um, both did. My dad was in uh, Vietnam and worked on helicopters in Vietnam and came out of, came out of that and, um, got a job working at an airport and did that his whole, his whole career. And my mother worked for the state straight out of high school. So, um, I guess there's a little bit of a pattern cause <laughs> I've basically been doing the same thing forever too. So sure. Um, well, uh, there is something that is so kind of, <clears throat> you know, in- ingrained with the idea where it's just like, yeah, you, you get a job and like, you, you know, you stick with it and, um, yeah, yeah there, you know, and plus it's, it's comfortable from that perspective. You don't have to worry about the, uh, 
you know, the, the dramatic changes that can sometimes occur when, uh, you know, you have all these new jobs and stuff, but, uh, yeah, that's fine <laughs> for you to be I, able to I, trace that. Like, Oh yes, yeah. like that's what my parents did. And yeah, that's what I'm, I guess I'm doing now. Yeah. It's, it's a little, di- I mean, it was a little different for me because, sure. uh, you know, I, coming out of high school, even though I was going to college, I was just like a hundred percent focused on being in the band and playing and, um, and just, you know, going to hardcore shows and, you know, I know a lot of people uh, talk about just being in a band and doing the band and that's like their whole focus. And I know I kind of just said that, but my focus really has never just been about doing a band and being in a band and all about me. It's, it's my focus has also just been about being in the hardcore and uh, contributing any ways I can, you know, doing a fanzine, helping do a show, helping other bands, you know, do this and just me going to shows myself and just, having fun and experiencing that and, and meeting people and, you know, all that kind of stuff has kind of been just as important to me as, you know, my actual participation in doing a band. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't, it might be a little bit of a different spin than I've heard other people, other people mention. Well, no, I, I, it is, but I think it's that idea that, you know, realistically most bands that started at, you know, at the time of mouthpiece and like, you know, when you started to become active in the scene, like yeah. that, you know, that was, there was no blueprint. It's like, you know, you could point to like, oh yeah, well, black flag did it or youth did it, they did it. But like, that was right. not, that was not attainable. Like you just right. did it because like you said, you were engaged in the community, you were active, you were participating and you're like, you know what? Like there was no practical thought in regards to making a living off of your band, but you're like, no, the longer, not at all. yeah, the longer I can do the band, then that's cool. But of course, I'm oh, gonna yeah. like, you know, focus on school and like, you know, figure out my degree and all that stuff. So I get it. Well, well that's where I'm getting. I didn't. I mean, I did go to school, but I didn't yeah, you really didn't focus. Right. I didn't focus a lot on. Yeah, that, that's where I'm. That's where I'm kind of get going. Um, I just I I, I I went to school, but I I just didn't really care. I didn't have a real focus on what the hell am I going to do? I didn't, you know, go, I, I mean, I had done a fanzine when, when I was younger. Um, and I had, so I had done all the layouts and stuff like that. And, and, you know, once I started doing bands, I was super active in, you know, creating all the imagery, doing all the layouts, creating the logos, laying out the records, designing the shirts. Um, so I kind of felt like that was my thing. Um, and when I was in high school, I started taking a graphic arts class. So I learned some printing and some, some layout design. And then once I graduated high school, I, I actually went for graphic, um, oh, graphic arts, it was called. And, um, you know, at that point, 1992, um, you didn't really have much in terms of like, um, you know, working in, InDesign or Illustrator or, or Photoshop or anything like that, you know, it was they were earlier versions of programs. But you know, I did learn a little bit of that, but it was a lot of like actual cut and paste and and typography, and you know, I had real like photography classes. So I did get into that, and I enjoyed doing that, and I kind of you know incorporated that with what I was doing with the band at the time. But my focus was always on just you know what I was doing. In, in hardcore, you know, with the band and, and, um, you know, just like in the scene, whatever. So I didn't put a ton of emphasis on, okay, I can't wait to graduate school and get a job as a graphic designer for some, you know, big company or anything like that. Like 
it all just kind of fell into place. I happened to have a friend who worked for a, a small um, printing company, and um, uh, I had hated the job that I was that I was doing prior. I was like loading trucks. You know, this is just go, going to college looking for a part time job, and sure. I was like loading trucks for a company, like, kind of like a UPS type of thing. And um, he was working. My friend. Um, was working at a uh, printing company. So he's like, I could probably get you in there doing like desktop publishing work, you know, designing business cards and letterhead and stuff like that. So I thought, all right, that's cool. At least I'm kind of doing something more that I, I would like to be doing. And, you know, I got into there and then I just started moving around, moving around. Um, but, um, so it became my career, sure. you know, but it was never like a real focus. I was never really super, career driven um you know it's just it was just like whatever you know i did to pay the bills really mm -hmm. you know but my passion was always what i was doing outside of work you know what i was doing with, with music sure much. It, it, yeah the, the the pursuit of of practicality was right. always you know, the reason that you did it was because it afforded you the opportunities to participate in, right. you know, punk and hardcore. Like that but, was it. But, right. But the thing was, is I never had these aspirations of doing the band as like some sort of full time touring machine. Um, you know, whereas a lot of, a lot of other people do bands and all they want to do is get signed and go play the warp tour and, you know, tour the world. Uh, for whatever reason that just wasn't, um, in me, you know, like I just, I wanted to, I was cool with touring, you know, I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to record records and stuff like that, but I never wanted to be like any kind of, um, you know, like a music machine. You know what I mean? I was never interested in getting signed to a major label. And uh, I mean, we could probably get into it later as we go on, but, uh, you know, there was, there was a point where my second band that I was doing called hands tied, we had gone to, um, We'd gone to Europe and uh, did a pretty cool, and I would consider it successful, like a month-long tour. And um, I remember we came back, and, and some members in the band were really like, all right, guys, it's time to kick this band into like the next next year. You know, Let's see if we can try to hook up and maybe try to get on like the Warp Tour or something like that. And I'm just like, I don't want to play the Warp Tour. <laughs> right, right. I, I well, be on some giant stage outside, like sure, with sure. a big barrier. Like that's not that's not cool to me. Like I want to play uh, a sh you know I want to play shows at places like CBGBs all across the country. You know what I mean? Like I'm not interested in, in being some big touring band, and and you know you know that, that was never my the direction that I was interested in going. And, and, hey, you know what? Like looking back, was it kind of stupid for me to not try to push it in that direction a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit, I probably could have done more with it. You know, I, I remember, um, I think you interviewed Norm mm -hmm. from Texas, the reason, and I remember him, uh, we were, we were friends and I remember him saying to me like, Tim, why don't you do more with mouthpiece? Why don't you guys like tour more, you know, like, and I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Side by side didn't really tour, you know, wide awake didn't really tour. Um, you know, it's like, we kind of came from that, that late eighties era where bands toured, but like, you know, yeah, it wasn't 300 dates out of a year. No, like yeah. Thrill Biscuits at the time had done like, you know, one tour, they ended up going to Europe, um, you know, bold toured the country like once, but it was like 
they, you know, bands, what more so they did was they hit, you know, all the kind of prime spots, you know, they'd go to Boston, they'd go to Connecticut, they, New York city, New Jersey, DC, you know, then they'd fly out to California and play the West coast. You know what I mean? And, and kind of, that was the, uh, the footsteps that I kind of wanted to follow, you know, just keep playing these cool cities, um, that had these kind of booming scenes and where all the, you know, hotbed of bands were. Um, and I remember Norm saying, like, no, man, you gotta, you gotta get out there and, and like just tour the country. You gotta, you gotta hit places like Iowa and introduce your band to them. And I'm just like, dude, I don't want to play in Iowa. You know, like, <laughs> right. I, I'm not really interested in, you know, in playing, uh, you know, uh, uh, a VFW hall in Iowa with a bunch of local bands and whatever. Again, like I look back on that now and I think oh, that was kind of stupid of me. I probably should have done that, you know, but at the time that just wasn't my interest. You know, I, I really didn't have these aspirations of, of, um, you know, becoming some big giant touring band, you know, or getting signed to a major label or, or promoting my records like that and, and trying to sell more records. And, you know, I'm sure new age probably would have uh, been happy if we did that, you know, but, um, that just wasn't our focus. Welcome on board to a new sponsor and one that is near and dear to my heart because they're run by very, very good people. But, you know, you've probably seen a lot of tours that exist right now have these sort of like VIP packages, you know, some experiences are, are awful. I've heard horror stories about it, but if you work with the company SoundRink, you know that this experience is going to be the real deal. These are people that put care and effort into working with bands to create these sort of like immersive experiences, VIP packages. Like they're like, Hey, you want to have coffee with your favorite band member before the show? Boom, done. How about, you know, a Q and a session? That's not just like, all right, five minutes and then let's movie movie in and out. Or how about like a guitar lesson? soundrink.com is the place to go for working with them to build these experiences. Like they're, they're not just some standard company that's just like, all right, whatever, you know, we'll work with you to get this, this, this thing off the road and, you know, make you extra a hundred bucks or whatever. No, they are in it for the right reasons. Soundrink is a VIP ticketing service that allows artists and fans to connect beyond the stage experience. They give the opportunity to meet, get limited merch, exclusive perks with whatever artists they are working with. So go to soundrink.com and find your favorite artist tours that are upcoming and you'll be able to dive into some amazing immersive experiences. I've seen what they do and they are the gold standard as far as this stuff is concerned. Okay. So go to soundrink.com to learn more, find your favorite band that's on tour and get that experience because it's really, really fun to do that. So thank you, Soundrink. And now the rest of the show. Can you attribute that sort of thought process to like, you know, did you, um, I mean, because of the touring that you did was limited in scope to what you were taught, just talking about, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, did you, I guess the, did the idea of touring, like Norm was outlining to you, did that just sound yeah. like you said, like obviously not fun and you know, whatever, like not optimal for what you were looking for. You know, it's, it's not that it, it did sound fun, but I don't, you know, I think I kind of like just growing up, like my parents were like, you got to get some kind of job, Sure. you know, you, you got to get whatever, you know, money to pay for gas and pay for your car insurance. And, and if I was going to be going out on the road, you know, and there was no, I mean, back then there was no thought that you would make any money, you know, you, you were hoping that you could, you know, 
make it even, you know, and, and, and like at least get gas money to go to the next, the next venue, you know, next state, whatever. But there was never any thought like you'd come home with like a pile of money in your pocket, you know, that just wasn't, that really just wasn't reality. At least it didn't seem like reality, you know what I mean? So the idea of going out on the roads almost seemed like I was, I would be like, um, neglecting my responsibilities that I had home, you know, which is kind of the way I was brought up, I guess, you know, sure. um, it, no. it just wasn't really a thing that, um, seemed viable, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting too, because the, you, you know, ostensibly, I mean, when I first started to, you know, discover that there were, you know, these, these shows happening. And once I started mm-hmm. to kind of put everything in context to one another, um, you know, when I started actively going to shows in like 96 or 97, um, mm-hmm. you know, by that time you guys had, you know, stopped playing, right. but I had noticed the, you know, the fact that you guys were drawing a substantial amount of people, like not only in the West coast, but obviously the East coast as well. And like you were playing pretty big shows and the idea that you were having to grab, and since you were always kind of, you know, the, focal point of business for the bands, you know, just yeah. because that kind of falls on the lead singer's shoulders in many respects. Um, right. there, you know, like there is, there was that tangibility that you could easily be like, dude, we just played in front of 800 people. And like, you know, whatever. Yeah. We got paid like a thousand bucks when, you know, realistically the promoters probably walking away with like $9,000, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what people did back then. Um, right. <laughs> but it's just yeah, interesting. We- it's interesting because you had that experience of being like, Hey, we're playing really good large shows. But it never, um, I guess, took over your thought process to be like, yeah, oh, well, man, we can make it. You thing. know what? You know what, though? Like, yes, we would play the, some big shows and have, you know, big crowds. But they were always in those big cities, you know, Boston, you know, um, New York City, uh, Philly, um, D.C., you know, California, whether it was, you know, um, LA or, um, whatever, you know? Um, so we didn't, but then we would go and play like some off the beaten path place in Pennsylvania and there would be 30 people there, you know? Right. right. And we still had fun, you know, but, um, you know, then we would go play a place, uh, another place in Maryland that wasn't DC and there was 15 people there, you know, <laughs> like, but you could play in DC at the safari club the next week and there's 600 people there, you know, it's just, it was kind of strange the way that it worked, but we would see that. And it was kind of like a slap of reality. Like, well, you guys aren't really as big as you think you are, you know, because (laughs) when you play these little shows, you know, you're getting, you're lucky if you're even getting paid at all. Right. And, and it's, you know, and look, it was still fun. And you had, you know, whether there was 15 people there or 1500 people there. Yeah. You didn't care we, because that wasn't always, your fault. Right, right. We always gave it our all and it was cool to like, you know, talk to kids and, and meet, you know, new people and stuff like that. But, um, but, you know, I think because of reasons like that, um, you know, it was, it was almost like a reality check, you know, like, yeah, you're going to have good shows in these big cities. But, um, when you start hitting the Midwest and, you know, trying to go to some of these like other places, um, the shows are going to be smaller, yep. you know? And, um, you know, we did tour in, in, in 95, we did, uh, a fairly substantial, uh, tour, um, made, you know, went through the Midwest a bit and uh, all the way up to Chicago. And, 
um, you know, there were some great shows uh, where there was 300, you know, people. And then there were some shows where we were playing basements in Kentucky to, you know, 10, 15 people. And some of those people were in the other bands that were playing, you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, Yeah. You had, you had both, you had both those experiences. It makes sense. Um, you know, kind of similarly related topic, the, you know, as you were, you know, doing all of these weird experiences from, um, you know, your parents' perspective, like, Mm -hmm. and clearly they were supportive of you and, you know, pursuing your endeavors. Um, Mm -hmm. but how you like, did they react I guess, negatively along the lines of just being like, dude, I don't know what you're doing, Tim. Like you're playing these shows, you got these X's on your hands. Like, you know, did they understand it at all? Or was it just kind of like, we'll let you do it. You know what? They sort of understood it, but, um, like my parents never came out to see me play ever. They still Um, have not still have never seen me play. Now they've seen videos for sure. I brought, uh, I brought you know, home videos of, you know, mouthpiece playing Middlesex County college to like, you know, a, a pack room of, you know, 600 people going crazy and, and put it on, you know, the TV or VCR at like, um, you know, like holiday of, you know, parties and stuff like that. And the whole family is like gathered around the TV, like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. What is this? Timmy, you know? Um, so they knew what I was doing. Um, sure. my dad always kind of joked around and just called it jump off the stage music. Like <laughs> that's pretty know, good. I like that classification. Going to, going to one of these, you know, jump off the stage shows and what are you doing? Jump off the stage, jump off. The, you know, it was constantly jump off the stage. Music. Um, you know, and my, I think my mom was always kind of like, well, you know, this is good, you know, have your fun, but you know, keep in mind that this isn't going to pay the bills. You know, this isn't going to, um, enable you to, uh, you know, drive a car and get an apartment and, and, um, you know, take steps into becoming an adult, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't think she ever really looked at it like that. And I didn't, you know, I, I never really gave her a reason to look at it like that because I, I wasn't really out doing it to that extent, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think by like 96, when I did go to Europe and, and, you know, spent the month in Europe with, with hands tied, I think that started turning some heads a little bit. Um, like, wow, holy told shit you you actually were in a tour bus and you know you actually came back with money and you know the shows were good like most of the shows were 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 packed and um but it was still never like you know this is this is a career you know this it was uh, you know it was like wow that was successful and you could probably keep doing this to some extent you know but you you gotta have a job sure right the practice yeah the practicality of it so yeah so i mean they were they were they weren't negative about it you sure know, but but they weren't they didn't push me to do it in a way like that i mean i've heard some people say oh my parents were just happy that i was happy so go off and go do that you know what i mean no they were they were really trying to direct me in the direction that they felt was the right way for me to go and you know the doing the band and skateboarding and stuff like that that's all fun Right. You know, These are all hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. They're all hobbies. They're, you know, they're fun. Enjoy it, but focus on school. Um, you know, get your degree, uh, figure out what you want to do for a job. You know, all that kind of stuff was always like a huge, huge focus. You know, yeah. For that. Sure. Sure. Totally. That makes sense. But not so much for me. No, right. <laughs> yeah. You will. It, I, I think ultimately the, the, the common refrain that I hear uh, from you is just the fact that like, you know, you're, your the lifestyles that you built for yourself, whether it was like you know 
not caring about school, caring enough where you were going and stuff like that. But yeah, like, yeah. As long as you had the creative license to be able to do what you needed to do from a band perspective, you didn't mm-hmm. care. Like mm-hmm. everything was kind of in service of the fact that you could, you know, exist within hardcore and punk. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you nailed it, right? There we go. There we go. I'm glad we got to the bottom of it, Tim. <laughs> but, um, you know, kind of along those, those lines, like, you know, when you were, or what we were talking about sort of, you know, at the beginning, when you felt like things, you know, you started to play for more than just your friends and you started to have like that, uh, I guess kind of momentum start to build and, you know, you started to work with new age and all this stuff started to happen. Um, did at any point, did you feel kind of like, uh, overwhelmed where it was like, you know, it's all exciting, but did you feel like, Oh my gosh, like this is grown to a place that I, obviously never intended it to be. Um, and well, I don't, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. Um, I, I think one thing that I thought about is when I was a kid growing up, uh, I was super quiet, reserved. I mean, really shy, you know? And, um, when I got into hardcore, it was, it was like, um, it kind of gave me this, uh, um, an identity in a way, you know, especially like once I started doing a fanzine and, but I was still kind of like behind the scenes, you know, it was like a lot of writing people back then and communicating with people. But it was like, you know, I was thought that was super cool that I was able to do that. Um, and once I started doing a band and had to get on stage, it was like, Holy shit. I like, I'm super quiet, super shy how am i going to get on stage in front of anybody Mm -hmm. you know um so you know that was a bit of a you know i don't know if that's exactly what you were shooting for but that was a bit of an eye-opener um you know taking on that that whole new sort of um me up there you know being on a stage in front of people and and talking and um it was it was just a whole new world for me um but it was something that I felt strangely comfortable with. Um, you know, not to say I wasn't nervous. I was nervous and still am to this day whenever I do it. Um, but it was, it was, I felt like I belonged there. I felt like this was, this is, um, I don't know, kind of like my calling, you know, so to say. Sure. And, um, you know, these people are, you know, whether I knew all them or not, I felt like they were like my friends to a degree and they could look at me and, 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 um, you know, accept me for who I was and understand what I was into. And, um, you know, my words were, um, you know, just as valuable to them as, as anybody else where like, you know, growing up, like being quiet kid in school and stuff, I had like a group of friends, but, um, you know, I'd be one of those kids that when, you know, I was asked to come to the front of the class and read a report, I was like almost shaking in my boots. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I was so quiet and shy. I didn't want to get in front of somebody and, and, and speak and stuff to people. Cause I just always kind of felt like, you know, I couldn't, I don't know why. Cause it's not like I was a strange kid or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, kind of like the only thing I kind of look back on it was, growing up an only child for my first 14 years, you know, I didn't have any siblings to, you know, bounce off of and stuff like that. So it was, 
it was a lot of just sort of figuring things out for myself and, and, um, you know, becoming comfortable with myself. And, um, you know, I think once I started doing a band, it really kind of opened the, the doors to like, um, you know, making me feel more comfortable in, you know, big, big, uh, you know, public settings and, and stuff like that. You know, I think, again, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to come off like I was some like, uh, you know, crazy, like, um, introvert, sure. you know, introvert, you know what I mean? I wasn't, I, I wasn't. And I may, it may sound like I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but you know, as a kid, you, you kind of, everything's kind of magnified as a kid, you know, and you, you feel like, you know, like I, I don't relate to anybody and, 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 and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, I, I understand where you're coming from and the idea that the overwhelming nature of, you know, putting yourself up there in any public setting and then, you know, expressing yourself artistically and then, mm-hmm. you know, getting the visceral immediate feedback on whether people like it or not. Um, right. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to, it's not going to influence what you're going to do about it. Cause like, you're still going to do it, you know, like, I mean, right, unless you right. like play two years worth of bad shows and then you're like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, but yeah. I understand what you're talking about. Just that feeling of, um, wow, I'm exposing myself up here and you know, that's, uh, right, that's right. a lot. And yeah. What, what, what was your main, what was your, your, your original question? Cause I'm not quite sure if I answered it properly, but that's what, what came into my head. When no, it. no, it was. Cause he, I, I was just yeah. saying, I was saying the, you know, the overwhelming nature of, um, you know, kind of like once you start to play shows and feel like you have momentum and then, oh, you know, right. pre- pressures build in certain ways, but no, you hit the, you know, even before all that stuff starts to happen, you know, <laughs> just playing yeah, shows yeah. in front of 20 people. Like that's a lot. Right. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Oh boy, I get to tell you about Rockabilia again. Now, seriously, if you have not gone to rockabilia.com, you're dumb, okay? Well, maybe you're not dumb, but let's just go to that website. You will be able to find so much amazing stuff every piece of band merch you can possibly shake a stick at. They have half a million items there for sale. And what you're going to do is use this code PC100WORDS. That's the number 100WORDS. You know how to spell, I'm guessing. 
and you'll be able to get 15% off your order. They have so much great stuff. Now, it's getting to that time where you got to think about the holidays. And what better way to get your, you know, little brother, little sister, older brother, older sister, you know, some cool band merch because you can get stuff for yourself. You can get stuff for them. You can get hoodies. You can get flags. You can get scarves, beanies, whatever it is you want, they have. Rockabilia is the best. I actually am going to have Frankie, a co-owner of the company, on a future episode because, uh, yeah, independently owned and run. They've been existing for 30 plus years. They officially license all their band merch, which is super important. You're not going to get some horrible, horrible bootleg. So Rockabilia is the best place to go. Rockabilia.com. Use the code PC100words and get so much band merch that you will be just the hero of Christmas. Okay. Thank you, Rockabilia. I have to hit hands tied because that was a, uh, just a foundational EP for me, just in regards to like, you know, you came out swinging with that where it just, oh, wow. it felt very, um, it felt very focused in a way that, you know, I think a lot of bands, um, you know, maybe necessarily don't, uh, have right. the collected experience that you guys did when you came out with that. Um, and it seemed like even though, you know, we spent the first 30 minutes of this just talking about, you know, the kind of juxtaposition of the practicality mm-hmm. of not touring versus, you know, um, you know, the, the real life implications. It right. seemed it seemed like Hands Tied had more of a, I guess, professional lean to it in ways that, um, you know, like Mouthpiece really never did. Um, right. It, it, do you think that was a function of obviously kind of the other band members that were like, Oh, Hey, and like, Oh, we put this out and you know, now there's people paying attention to us. Well, and- I think, it, I think it was really all, it all kind of stemmed from me and Sean who played in mouthpiece, um, coming from mouthpiece and having all that experience of doing a band and recording records and being on a record label and, you know, doing tours and, shows and communicating with people. So we just build up all this experience, you know, and, um, you know, mouthpiece was a band that just, I I started with, uh, you know, dudes that I went to high school with, you know, we were just, we weren't a band that was put together like this guy from this town and this guy from this town. We were all friends that went to high school together who were, you know, went to shows together, skated together, basically grew up together, you know? So, um, what came out of, us musically was just what naturally came out of, I mean, like we were all big fans of like chain of strength and, and gorilla biscuits and youth of today. And we were seeing these bands play and we were just like, we got to do this, you know? So musically what, what came about was just a natural thing. There was never any, like, we want to sound like this, or we want to sound like that. Um, it's just, we were super into chain of strength and, and we ended up writing songs and, you know, sort of in that vein, sure. um, you know, that very traditional, uh, yeah, I think for some reason we had this very, um, West coast sound. We were, you know, very much into like bands like against the wall and pushed aside and no for an answer. And, you know, we loved all the New York bands and stuff as well, but musically at the time i think we were just heavily listening to you know because you figure like 1989 so many bands were were popping up from the west coast that we were just taking interest in all that kind of stuff so i think that had you know a um it's kind of bled into what we were putting together um so anyway towards the tail end of mouthpiece um actually on the tour in 95 um our roadie ed and our Rodian McCurdy and then um our guitar player, Matt Weeder, 
we kind of knew that mouthpiece was winding down. Um, our guitar, our other guitarist, Chris, who was one of the guys that I grew up with and, you know, started the band with from the get go. Um, he was just, he had moved into a part in his life where he was like heavily into uh, his job. Um, not like, not like he was a super career uh, focused guy either, but um, he, he got a full time job like right out of high school, basically, and for, for the state or uh, for the county. Um, so he didn't have a lot of free time. Um, he couldn't get uh, a lot of time off from work to go tours and you know stuff like that. He could do weekends, which is you know kind of to step back a little bit, which kind of. Uh, gives you an idea of why we did what we did with mouthpiece had a lot to do with Chris's schedule, you know, where uh, the rest of us, like he was two years older than us. So the, uh, you know, the rest of us were a little bit younger Mm -hmm. and probably had a little bit more freedom because we were just, you know, working part-time jobs or, you know, living at home. Whereas Chris was graduated high school and got this job working for the, um, the county and uh, he was pretty much set for life. I mean, he still works for the county now. You know what I mean? That, that was going to be his job. And like I said, he didn't have a lot of free time to take off and go do this and that. So that really um, kind of gauged what we could do with the band um, and, and limited us as far. Like we were supposed to go, I think it was 1994, we, were, we had gotten asked to go to Europe with Slapshot. And we all agreed we could do it. And then, um, literally like two, three weeks before the tour was about to kick off, um, Chris was just like, I can't, I can't do it. He's like, I, I thought I could get this time away from work. And he was trying to battle with work to try to get the time off and he, he just couldn't get it. So he was like, I got to I got to back out. And at the time we didn't even consider not, we didn't consider doing it without him. You know, we we're just like, this is we, we just, we got we to pull, to pull off out. Tour. Sure. Right. So we pulled off the tour. Um, but anyway, so, you know, things like this had, had, had happened and, you know, it, again, it's not like I wanted to be this full time touring band, you know, but I did want to do more than what we were doing. Sure. Um, and you were chasing down probably, you know, the exciting opportunities that came up. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And, and as the, the, you know, the nineties went on, it was becoming more common. You know, when we started in 1990, you know, youth of today and like gorilla biscuits had gone to Europe and now you're granted tons of other, you know, punk and hardcore bands, like bigger bands had gone, you know what I mean? But like bands that were kind of like in our field, you know, those type of bands, um, there, there wasn't a whole lot of them that had, had done Europe, you know what I mean? At that point. But as the years went on, you know, next thing you know, everybody, it's just commonplace. Everybody's doing it, you know? Um, so, uh, by the late, later nineties, you know, by like 1995, 96, every band is going to Europe. Every band is touring the country and we're not. So we're, you know, we're, we're playing out as much as possible, fairly constant, but we're not touring, you know, like that. So anyway, the tail end of, of mouthpiece, um, we, we had this tour booked in 95 and, um, again, it came down to the last minute and Chris decided he could go on the tour, um, which we were devastated, but we had already booked all this. And, and this time around we were like, we're going to do it without you, Chris. And he was cool with it. So 
we just asked um, one of our old guitar players, Pete Riley, if he would join us on the tour. So we would, you know, sort of fill out the lineup as a five piece. And um, we, we did the tour like that. But, you know, me and Matt kept talking like, man, we got to do more with the band. And it seems like, you know, we can't really do that with Chris. Like, we want to go to Europe, you know. Um, so we should just start something new. You know, like, let's just, let's just create something new. So, uh, our friend and roadie and McCurdy, um, he played bass and like, uh, just a couple like little, uh, you know, bands and stuff like that. And, and so we were like, you know, why don't you play bass Ed? and, uh, you know, Matt will play guitar and naturally I'll sing. And, um, you know, we just got to find ourselves a drummer. So we had this idea of starting hands tied in 95 when we were doing the last uh, mouthpiece tour and um, by the time I think we, we kind of you know mouthpiece kind of stretched itself out uh, you know we kept thinking it was gonna it was gonna end and then we we're doing one more show and then one more show and then we get asked to do this show and the tail end of mouthpiece like it just things had, had gotten to probably the biggest point that we had ever been you know, with, with the band. Um, not that every show was huge, but most shows we were playing were, were pretty big and pretty mm-hmm. fun. Um, and we were getting asked to play and stuff like constantly. So, you know, we, we had a hard time saying no, you know, we got asked to play this show and, uh, you know, it was a good lineup. So we're like, all right, let's do it. You know? And, um, after, after the tours, you know, like Chris came back and played with us and stuff, but, we ultimately knew that that there wasn't um, there wasn't a, a future for for mouthpiece to do as much as we wanted to do. So anyway, so um, with hands tied, we had taken all that experience of of everything you know, like I had said before, and we were very we were very focused. Um, so the band was originally going to be me and Matt from Mouthpiece, and our our, our bass player was Ed, our, our um, roadie. And um, as towards the end of Mouthpiece, Matt ends up getting a call from I don't know if it was somebody from Guilt from Kentucky, and it said, "Hey Matt, how about you move down to Kentucky?" And play for Gil, and at the time Matt was living in uh, New York City, and he really hated living in New York City. He hated the, you know his 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 rent and just uh, you know just the normal um, getting around the city. And and you know he played in a band in New Jersey, so he'd have to take the train. He didn't have a car. It was just a big headache for him. So the idea of moving to Kentucky and joining this established band. Um, and they said, look, you can live here. It all sort of made sense to him. So uh, this idea of doing the band with him, starting hand side with him, just all of a sudden the floor drops out for us. And it's just me and Ed were like, wow, what are we going to do? And, um, Sean McGrath, who had played bass in mouthpiece as mouthpiece is kind of finishing. Um, so Matt had left and we were actually playing the remainder of our shows, with, with just Chris as a four piece. And, um, at some point Sean started playing in, um, a band. I shouldn't even say it was a band. It was just a little project that he was doing with, um, another local guy, um, named Pacadotti. 
he uh, lives in one of the surrounding towns we all grew up in um, skateboarder guy again we were all skateboarders so um, Sean started kind of making music uh, with Pat as mouthpiece was finishing and just so happened that you know Matt moves away and me and Ed are kind of over here like shit we got to find people to do this band and one day Sean calls me up and says hey you know I'm working on this thing with with Pat um would you would you be down to check it out because like we don't have anybody to sing for it I'm like yeah yeah I'll check it out but in my mind I'm thinking I want to do this like full on like straight edge hardcore like youth of the day uh, style band you know just like fully focused and the things that Sean was telling me he kind of was wanted to do something a little bit more melodic something more like in the vein of like Dag Nasty which I loved but at the time just wasn't ready to go in that direction and um, but I said yeah yeah I'll, I'll check it out so Matt um Sean had, had played bass for Mouthpiece, but he didn't really contribute a whole lot musically. You know, he came into the band towards the end. He was like the youngest guy. So he just kind of, you know, fit into place and just played what we told him to play. And he was kind of a, a quiet guy and, 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 you know, didn't really put much of his personality into the band or anything like that. Um, but with when I heard this music that he was he was making with, with Pat... I was, I was kind of like surprised, pretty much like blown away that, that Sean had the capabilities of like writing music like this because sure. he, he had never done it for mouthpiece, you know, um, not that he couldn't cause he probably, he obviously could, but he just kind of wasn't given the opportunity, I guess. But you know, when he had this chance to do something on his own, he came up with like these cool songs and I remember sitting down in his car with him. We met somewhere, and um, I think we met at like this mall. And we, you know, I parked my car and I went and got in his car, and we sat down in his car and we just listened to uh, like this tape in his car. And I remember hearing these songs and thinking, "Holy shit!" I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You know, and like Pat, who played drums, um, you know, I knew him as a great skateboarder, but didn't even really know him as being a guy that was like super into music or even being a guy who could play music. So I was kind of surprised to hear him play drums and be so good, you know? So um, I'm hearing all this and I'm like thinking in my mind, wow, man, you know, I could probably work with this. And I said, Sean, you know, I know you're kind of, you want to go in this more sort of melodic, uh, you know, dag nasty type of direction, but how would you feel about sort of redirecting this in more of a, you know, youth of today, New York hardcore type of direction, you know? And he was like, yeah, I think I could go with that, you know? And, and I was like, why don't you talk to Pat and, and, and see what, see what he says. And I, and I said, I got, a, I got, uh, Ed, you know, sitting here ready to play bass, you know, maybe we could make this the new band. Um, and, and Sean just, he loved the idea. He loved the idea. So, um, of course, he talked to Pat, and I went and talked to Ed, and and then um, we the all got was formed. <laughs> yeah, and we all got together. Um, we we would start we started practicing in I think it was probably Pat's mother's basement, 
And um, these songs just came together. Actually, no, I take that back. Maybe it was maybe it was Sean's house. Sean had a um, uh, like a polka band in his backyard, and um, we we could go back there and just like you know lock ourselves in there and just write music. And um, we were we were super focused. I mean, we were like, look, let's let's do this. Um, you know, we had a very specific sound we were going for, like at least me and Ed did. So it took some kind of molding with those guys. I mean, it was, it was fairly easy. It wasn't like it took a lot of effort or a lot of coaxing to get them to do it. You know what I mean? But me and Ed were the guys that came in with really like a very specific, um, idea how we wanted this band to be everything from the, the name to the, you know, um, the, the way our, the records looked, uh, you know, the way our logo looked. I mean, everything was very like we were thinking about it ahead of time because we, again, we had so much time, or I had so much time doing this for so many years. You know, I had been doing bands for six years at this point, or doing mouthpieces at least for six years, um, that I just knew what I wanted and what I didn't want. And, um, you know, I didn't want to worry about doing a band that had, you know, 50 different t-shirts designed, you know, at that one point with mouthpiece, it was a joke that, um, amongst like, I remember like Ari from lifetime being like, dude, you guys got more t-shirt designs and songs, you know, yeah, like, <laughs> totally. That, that was like the way it was with mouthpiece, but with, with hands tied, I'm like, I don't want to have 1000 different t-shirt designs. I want to focus. I want to write songs. I want to put out records and, and just be, you know, much more, refined um you know i think with with mouthpiece we were we were a, a band who was definitely um super into those bands that came before us um but there was also an element of what was happening at the time in the 90s that you know in uh inevitably creeped into what we were doing you know what i mean so sure um you know, and that, that was just, it just, it just happened. It was just natural. So with hands tied, I very specifically didn't want to be or sound like a nineties band. You know what I mean? Like I wanted this band to sound like something that could have come out in 1987, 1988, 1989. You know what I mean? Like that, that was, that was really what we wanted. So yeah, that was, um, that was the focus of it. Sure. No, it makes sense. And it, it, it cut it. Yeah, it cuts through. And, um, I mean, I think that sonically too, it's, it was also obviously a modern recording, so it, it didn't sound yeah. dated. Like you can listen to it now and you can be like, Oh yes, I see the influence, but like, yeah, it, right. it, it, it doesn't, and, it doesn't date itself. Right. We recorded the record at the same studio that we had recorded, um, the majority of the mouthpiece stuff. But again, you know, it's just more time, you know, we had done three records with mouthpiece at that studio. You know, now we're doing a fourth one, a fourth record, I mean, you know, a new band, but like we have that experience of being in the studio and what we want things to sound like, what we want the backups to sound like, what we want the drums to sound like, you know what I mean? Like we weren't just going in there like we were with mouthpiece and just blasting out and whatever it came out like is what came out like, you know, with hands tied, it was like, all right, I remember, um, the Civ album had, had been out and I remember like thinking we were all kind of talking like, dude, Arthur's bass sound on that Civ record is incredible. And it, and it was like, yeah, that's how my bass has to sound, you know, like it's totally, this so is what, this know, we, is what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. That we makes went sense. in there with, with that focus, you know, and, um, 
So yeah, it, it was very much um, um, focused. And the other thing I think that helped direct things was Equal Vision Records. Um, with Mouthpiece, we were on New Age, and um, the, the, the I don't want to say it was a problem, but the thing about New Age is that we were on the East Coast and Mike was on the West Coast with, with New Age. So, like, we couldn't be as, as hands-on with everything, you know? Like, we, um, it was basically, like, it was phone conversations, it was writing letters, it was, you know, sketching out ideas of how we wanted things to look and then sending it to him and then seeing what it looked like when it came out, you know what I mean? Like, you didn't have proofs, you know, like, like, uh, like nowadays you design a record, somebody's going to show you a PDF proof of what the record's going to look like. There was no PDF proof back then. It was, it was sketchings of what, you know, or it was us doing the actual cut and paste layouts, you know, and, and, and sending it to Mike and then crossing our fingers that stuff doesn't fall off in the mail. You know sure. what I mean? Like <laughs> totally. a song title doesn't drop off or, or whatever, or that, that, you know, that, um, whatever, like that things look the way they're supposed to look, you know, so it was always kind of a crapshoot and that was, you know, no knock on Mike. That was just a situation that we were in working with a label on the West coast when we were on the East coast and, and, you know, and, and kind of the way the times were at that time, um, with, uh, equal vision, um, uh, they were in New York. So, um, actually when, Right around the time Mouthpiece was ending and, and Handside was starting, uh, Equal Vision was in New York City for a while. And that's kind of how I met Steve Reddy and um, really like became friends with him. I used to go to their um, – they basically just had like a, a, a apartment warehouse. It was all one. You know, They lived there and they had their records there, their offices there. It was all just like you know in Manhattan. So I was going there and hanging out there quite a bit. And I remember um, Steve telling me, hey, man, if you ever do another band, I'd love to do your record. And I just thought that was cool because you know, Steve with Equal Vision was right there, you know, right there in New York City. And I could hop on a train. I could hop in my car and drive up there and I could work with him. I could, he had the T-shirt presses right there. You know, they were printing the T-shirts, you know, the, the, he had the computers and he was laying out the records or, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it just seemed really cool idea. So when Hands Tied finally came together and um, we, you know, decide we're going to do a record on equal vision. Um, Steve had moved to upstate New York, so it was a little bit further away. It was like probably about a three hour ride, but three hour ride is much easier to deal with than, you know, a, a six hour flight to, to California and, or, you know, being on the phone with Mike. So, um, it, it just really helps streamline things is, is really what I'm getting at with, with, um, equal vision being in New York, especially with, you know, that seven inch. I mean, we, we actually want, once we record it, we drove up there, we brought the, the, the reels, we sat down with a bunch of pictures and we laid the record out like right there. You know, we did the design for the CD, we did the design for the cassettes, we did the design for the, for the seven inch, everything, you know, right, right there with Steve sitting next to me. Um, so we knew what we were getting. We knew what things were going to look like. Um, you know, we brought the t-shirt designs for him. He had a, um, a, a, a screen, uh, a printing machine in his, in his place. So, um, when he 
print the shirts, it was like, okay, let's go meet them in New York city and get the shirts. You know what I mean? Like it was, everything just moved much, um, more streamlined and, and easy. And it kind of fell in place with the whole focus of the band. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was all readily accessible. So yeah, that's right. no, it's cool. It's cool. Laying yeah. that, whole, that whole process out. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, kind of the, the last thing that I wanted to hit on, which, you know, I know will be a kind of a, a big idea. Mm-hmm. The, um, you know, clearly you've been involved for many, many years, played in, you know, so many different bands and worked with a ton of different labels and have contributed, you know, a, in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, in ways that obviously most people don't, <laughs> don't mm-hmm. over time. So <laughs> like, h- how do you find yourself, um, you know, kind of not like becoming that, uh, you know, old guy that hates the new bands and stuff like that. Um, you know, how do you avoid walking into that, uh, kind of cliche when, you know, like it, it can understandably happen to people. Um, but mm. you know, how have you, I guess, kind of avoided that? Is it just because you've stayed involved? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I think it's just because there's never been any time off to sit back and then to come back and be like, Oh, look what these kids have done now. You know what I mean? It's sure. just, it's just been rolling along, you know? Um, I mean, really I started doing a fanzine in like 87, 88. Um, you know, it's just been one project to the next project to the next project. You know, it was my first scene. I did a fanzine called slew. I did three issues. Then I did common sense, fanzine with uh tony ratman and then from common sense it was mouthpiece and then from mouthpiece it was it was hands tied um there was a little break between hands tied and the next band i did um it was only like about a year um i had uh, after that i did a band called face the enemy um which was basically uh better than a thousand um but ray had left the band and, and those guys had recorded a full album and um, we're looking to do more with the band. So I said, well, let's, you know, change the name and, and, uh, you know, I'll do that. So, you know, there was maybe a year off, um, but I was still going to shows in that time period, you know, then it was bad. Then it was into another band, you know, and then we were, I was recording with them and I didn't do a whole lot with that band. Um, just because, uh, Graham, uh, the guitar player was living in Sweden at the time. He's from DC, but he was living in Sweden at the time. So it kind of complicated things in order to, you know, do a whole lot with the band. He had to, you know, we had to be able to, uh, fly him over and be able to, uh, make enough money to pay for his flights and everything like that. So it got kind of complicated and the band kind of fizzled out. But, um, right from facing an enemy, it was, um, I think, um, it was into triple threat, the next band I did. And then, um, from triple threat, I started doing, um, a blog. I started doing a blog called double cross. And, um, I did that, which kind of took off after, um, triple threat broke up. So from like 2008 on for the, like the next, whatever, seven, eight years I did double cross. So I was still, you know, involved interviewing old bands, interviewing new bands, um, pushing new bands material, uh, you know, just involved in the scene, talking to people, meeting new, new people. Um, it just never got to a point where it was boring to me or, um, felt, um, 
disconnected. Yeah. 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 I was, I was never disconnected. I was always in the mix in some way or another, you know, and then from, from double cross, um, you know, like in between there, there has been, you know, like sort of some resurrection of doing stuff with mouthpiece and doing Mm -hmm. stuff with hands tied. Um, I want to say reunions, but you know, a reunion should probably only be one or two off type of thing, you know, whereas, sure. you know, um, we would, we would do, you know, we did some stuff in 2000 with mouthpiece and then again in 2004. And then once we did our discography on revelation, that was in 2009, um, a, a year or so later, we did some more stuff. Mouthpiece did some more shows with youth today. And so there's always been stuff happening. You know, there's always been some kind of shows. Um, even when there's lulls in band activity, you know, like there was that lull in band activity from, um, hands tied to face the enemy. But in between there, um, I think I did, yeah, I did a, like a reunion type of set with hands tied. Sure. Um, you know, and then in between, um, I guess at some point in 2000, you know, I did these string of shows with mouthpiece. So yes, there's always been this constant flow of things happening, being involved, doing shows, you know, learning about new bands, meeting new people, hearing new stuff. And, um, it's, you know, the connective, right. It's the connective tissue is, is there. And I I think that's there. Yeah, and, and I think to your point, the I think when people feel disconnected or you know whatever defensive or threatened is when you know they do take a couple of years off where it's like you mm-hmm. know and you understand it where it's just like yeah you're pulled in a million different directions and you know you've right. got all these obligations or whatever but um you know yeah I think when people kind of come back and are like oh things have changed and you know all this other yeah, all these like, uh, other who, bands who, sound like old right. bands it's like well who are these who are these bands? They weren't around, you know, last time I was here, who are these bands, you know? And like, they don't know people, you know? So like, there's this kind of, um, instant, you know, bitterness, you know, who the fuck is this? You know? And, and I never had that because I've continuously stayed involved and, and it's not, and, and, and not only have I continuously stayed involved, um, but I think the important thing is that I've continued to meet people. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I just, cause a lot of people will be in hardcore and they'll just remain friends with their same 15 friends that they've been friends with for the past 20 years, whatever, 20, 30 years, you know, like I would, I kept meeting new, new people, you know? So like a big thing for me, I think I remember, you know, at the point when I was doing probably like face the enemy, early 2000s, 2000, 2001, I met the kids in, in the band, the first step, and they were like younger than me. Um, but they were doing, you know, traditional straight edge, hardcore type of stuff. And I met those kids and I thought they were awesome. And I thought their band was awesome, you know? And I started like, just, I'd go on the road with them. Just, you know, they were playing a show, you know, up in whatever, Maine, you know, I'd, I'd jump in the van with them and, and just drive with them to go to the show and hang out and, and, you know, then from hanging out with them, I met, you know, other kids in other bands, you know what I mean? I met like maybe these guys in, you know, verse or something, you know? And then, um, so it just, it's just like, you just keep going on and on and on, you know what I mean? You just keep meeting people and, and, um, yeah, like you said, that connection just continues. And, um, 
and you, you don't get bitter because you're still a part of it. And, and you, you know, these people know you, you know, them, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I like every band that's around now or, sure. or, um, you know, there's probably far, far less bands that I like, you know what I mean? Um, than I do like, but, uh, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not like I don't want to be involved with hardcore because I don't like how certain bands sound or anything like that. You know, yeah. um, there's, there's still, um, there's still plenty of, of cool kids. And you know, I think one, I know people have so many negative things to say about social media. And I'm, I know there are tons of bad things about social media, but one of the positive things is, is that it connects, you know, people all over the world, you know, and like, I've met people and been in contact with older friends and new friends. And, you know, it's like I'm meeting people constantly. And, um, that's just, I think that's pretty, pretty fucking cool. You know, that like I can meet, you know, some kid that lives in England that otherwise I would never meet, you know, he's never been here, you know, and I've never been there, but he sends me a message and we start talking and next thing you know, we really hit it off and get along well. And, you know, um, I ended up being friends with a, a guy that I've, you know, met, you know, six years ago through, through, uh, you know, Instagram or something like that. You know what I mean? Like you can establish actual real relationships with people, um, meaningful, you know, have meaningful conversations and exchanges with people. Um, so it's, it's, it's not all negative, but you know, things like that help you know, keep you involved. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's really, that's, yeah, I think that's what yeah. most people should strive to uh, be in some capacity, whether or not they are as active going to shows or buying records. It's like, you know, still having that connective tissue is mm-hmm. incredibly important because, yeah. I, I can say, you know, your podcast is serves the same, you know, can serve the same type of purpose. You know, I might not have ever heard of, you know, so-and-so's band that you've interviewed, um, but, I'll check it out. And sure. I go, wow, this is, yeah, this, this guy is cool. pretty, this guy seems pretty cool. I, you know, I might've never searched out his music prior to that, but now that I'm here and I'm like, wow, this guy seems really cool. Yeah. I'll check it out. Maybe, maybe we have a lot of the same ideas. Um, maybe some of these preconceived ideas that I kind of thought that this person was about, I was wrong, yep. you know? So then I check out the music and I'm like, wow, this is, this is actually kind of cool. So yeah, you know, it serves a, a good, uh, you know, po- positive purpose. Sure. Full circle stuff. Um, right. the last thing I want to hit you on was the, uh, you yeah. know, you, you're a father, uh, you, yeah. you, how old are your kids? I have a six year old son named Trevor. Okay. I have a 12 year old daughter named Taryn and I have a seven year old son named Travis. Got it. So yeah, all, you, you all, got all T's. I'm Tim. My wife's name is Tracy. So <laughs> you keep it. Yep. whole tea collection. <laughs> um, and so that, you know, I mean, clearly being raised in the house that, uh, you know, you and your wife have built in regards to, you know, straight edge vegetarian, like all, all of these sort of counterculture lifestyles. Um, you know, how have, how is that kind of, I guess, I mean, clearly it influences your parenting because, mm-hmm. you know, they're exposed to that. Um, you know, how have you kind of noticed this, like, you know, subculture that your kids are being raised in that, you know, now they're being exposed to that is like quote unquote normal for them. And then when right. they go in the world, they're like, Oh wow, this is weird. Not everybody does that. So how's it kind of, yeah, you know, well, how have I you observed that, that? 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing is is vegetarianism. You know, my wife and I are vegetarians. My kids are all vegetarians. So they've never had meat in their lives, you know, from the time they were born. Um, so um, they've they've just been vegetarians their whole lives. And I, you know what, though? It's kind of, it's a, it's a different world we live in now because it's so much more accepted. You know, um, the, the, there's, uh, kids in school that are vegetarians, but, um, it's, it's just, it's kind of normal, but I'm trying to think, um, Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we've got lots of friends who have kids and their kids are vegetarians. And, sure. I, I, you know, that's probably the biggest thing. You know, they they recognize what vegetarianism is. You know, it's it's simple for them to sort of grasp, understand, you know, we don't eat animals. You know, we we respect animals. Um, you know, um, we it's like we wouldn't eat our pets. You know, sure. my, my wife has has chickens. You know, we don't eat the chickens, you know? Um, um, and, and, and the kids totally buy into that. They totally understand that and they respect that. And, um, I think that was sort of an easy thing to, to put on them because that's, that's how we live. Sure. You know? Um, when it comes to like hardcore and straight edge and stuff like that, like they know what they all know what straight edge is. Um, and you know, obviously the kids, they're not doing anything that's not straight edge. Um, but as far as the, the hardcore side of things, you know, they all like know what it is. Um, my wife will play them like mouthpiece in the car and like, they'll hear the song cinder, which is probably the more, uh, catchy type of song that we have. And the sure. kids will like sing along to that and, and they like it, you know? Um, but as far as like, you know, being interested in hardcore, they're not, you know, it's like they're, they're young kids and they are interested in what they want to be interested in. You know, it's like, they don't want to be into their parents' music. Um, you know, they, they understand it and they respect it. Um, yeah, but they're like, I don't want to listen to it. But they're just, they're just not interested in it. You know, and I understand that because, you know, how would a band from, you know, 1985 be relevant to, you know, my son who's 16, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's just nothing that really connects the dots for him other than knowing that his parents are into it, you know? So, um, he understands it. I think he respects it. Um, you know, being that I've been in bands and, and are friends with a lot of these bands that I've, you know, grown up listening to. They've met a lot of these. Like we went on, we used to go on camping trips with uh, Ray and Purcell. So they met those guys, you know, and like they, and they'll be like, who's your favorite band? I'll be like, you for today. They're like, oh, that's the band that like that guy, Ray, that was doing all the yoga at the camping trip. Yeah, that's him singing, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, but they don't, you know, they're not like, oh, that's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. I got to go, go listen to you for today. You know, they're just like, oh, okay. You know, it, it, it just, it's, it's just really hard to connect the dots for them and make them get interested in it. You know, we can keep playing it and playing it, but it, you know, a lot of it's just noise to them. Totally. You know? So, you know, I tried my best to play music that, I kind of feel would be like a gateway into that, you know, I've, you know, um, definitely not necessarily hardcore stuff, but, you know, tried to play like the Smiths or, you know, um, even some stuff like Dag Nasty or like Farside or, you know, some 
more melodic type of stuff. Um, I, for a while I got my son into Foo Fighters, you know, just cause it was something, you know, a guy from germs, a guy from scream guy from brotherhood, brotherhood doing a band, you know, um, that's a, a big rock band, you know what I mean? But like, you know, I know what their, their background is. He doesn't know what their background is, but no, you know, it doesn't matter to him, but yeah. it was, but they were like a relevant band who, you know, you could see something on TV about them. You could hear a song on the radio, um, you could be in the supermarket and the song could come on, you know what I mean? Um, totally. Um, so yeah, it's been tough to like sell them on that, but we're not, we're no, not, you don't need to put, we're not trying to shove it down the throats. You know, it's like, look, this is what we're into. You know how serious we are about it, how much we love it and what it means to us. You know, if, if they pick up a little bit out of it here and there, that's cool. Um, you know, my, my youngest son, Travis, um, at some point I was like playing Michael Jackson and he heard it and he was like, this is really cool. And he has over the past year become like a Michael Jackson super fan. I mean, like to the point where he's buying, he, he wants like every album he goes on YouTube and like watches all the videos. He, he can tell you, um, tour dates, you know, uh, he's taken his fandom to a level where it is, kind of cool because because like i was the same way when i was a kid like but more with hardcore you know what i mean like, sure i i you know like he goes on instagram and creates a little instagram page and it's all like you know michael jackson pictures and he's like this is from copenhagen you know and puts the date down and he plays a live video from this and it's like it's like holy shit you know he's like doing the same type of thing he's got this same sort of um you know vibe with music um, but it's, you know, it's a different kind of music, but it's, I but just, he's passionate, right. I just like that. He's passionate about something, you know, and it's not just playing video games or, or, you know, some kind of, you know, garbage music that's going on today, you know, post Malone or something, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that, which I'd rather him not listen to, you know? So like, um, I just think it's kind of cool that he really kind of, I mean, we'll go to record stores and this kid's down on his knees digging through records, trying to find Jackson five records, you know, yeah, and that's great. Like, Look at this dad. I found this, you know, and I'm like, that's awesome. You know? So I totally support that. Yeah, no, that's, super, um, that's super, super you know, cool. Cause yeah, my, it's, it's something you can understand and it's connecting yeah. you and him in a way that, um, you know, oh, it, yeah. if you did not understand music, then, you know, it would be a little, little more difficult. Right. And I tell him, you know, I was a Michael Jackson super fan in, you know, 1983 when Thriller came out, I was huge into it. And I still credit, you know, before that I was into music, but it was like what you heard on the radio. You know, I didn't go out and buy records. I was a kid, you know, I mean, in, in 1983, I was, I was nine years old, you know? So like, I was just kind of like, whatever I heard on the radio, cool, whatever. Um, and I remember when Michael Jackson came out, I was like, holy shit. I gotta have this record, you know, like, and then, and then it was like the videos and then I'm like buying like the magazines and stuff like that and reading, you know, articles and, you know, posters. And it was like a whole nother level of music fandom, you know what I mean? It's, and I ended up taking that into, you know, the direction of, you know, like punk and hardcore, you know, where I'd like, it wasn't just the peripheral, just listen to the music on the radio and just nod my head to it in the car. It was, it was like, I want to learn more about this, you know? And, and, um, you know, that's, that's really where that kind of started with me. So it's cool to see it start for him 
like that. And it's also interesting because he, you know, he's a seven year old kid. Like what's, there's not nothing that's extremely relevant about, you know, Michael Jackson now, you know what I mean? So the Jackson five and Motown, like he's into like, he's interested in like Motown stuff. He's like talking to me about Smokey Robinson and Diana Ross and, you know what I mean? So he's already kind of taken his his fandom that he got from Michael Jackson and kicking it up a notch into these other things. You know what I mean? These other kind of like Motown musics and stuff like that, which I think is amazing. You know, and, and, and it's it can only be a positive thing to keep growing from that and just being passionate about music like that. So I'm, I'm super stoked about that. Yeah, no, that's super, super cool. That's really exciting. Well, uh, Tim, thanks for letting me pick your brain, dude. This was super fun. Yeah, I really no enjoyed problem. it. It was fun. That was great, right? Tim is uh, just a, just a sweetheart of a guy, and I really, uh, like I said, his bands were foundational for me in realizing how I could express myself. And I can definitely say that, you know, him and Unbroken and you know Dave from Unbroken were influential at my lyric writing. Not like I was as good as them, but um, yeah, it just gave me, I guess, creative license to be like, you know what, I can do this. Okay, like this is fun. This is talking about, you know, emotions and not, uh, not again, just maybe some cliched topics that other hardcore bands write about, which there's nothing wrong with that because I love those sort of bands as well. But anyways, thank you very much, Tim. And, uh, next week we have a, uh, I was going to say a curveball, but it's like, this is, this is what the show's about. I'm covering old, I'm covering new, I'm covering bands that might be, you know, hardcore adjacent, but this band is is very, very good for what they do. Tyler Riley, he's from the band called Gideon, and uh, Gideon is a very interesting band. I actually had the drummer on uh, maybe about two and a half years ago, Jake Smelly, if I'm not mistaken, Um, and it was a really interesting conversation because he was kind of going through a crisis of faith in a way where he was just like, I don't even know if I'm Christian anymore. I don't even know if this band's Christian because that's kind of the roots that they grew up in, and now the band is on Equal Vision Records. They are fully out of that whole sort of like Christian hardcore scene. And it's really, really interesting because the band has definitely um, tried to push any of those fans that might have those sort of puritanical beliefs that I can only like this band if they're Christian. So anyways, we, we got into it and Tyler and I uh, discussed that and it was really, really interesting. So that's what we got next week. And uh, of course, I will always talk to you then. So be safe, everybody. Hey, Miles. Yes. It's Jack from work. Yes. Hi. Did you know that we host a daily news and culture podcast where people can I go to get caught up know. on what is yes. happening? Are you? Yes. Are you confused about that? You're talking about the Daily Zeitgeist. I just wanted show to that make sure every day. you knew and that everybody knew that you could listen to us every day, twice a day, talk about what is happening and they could learn everything without feeling the life drain from their soul yeah i think at the daily zeitgeist we like to give people a balance of just enough news that they feel informed and just enough laughs that they're not overwhelmed they can have a decent day after listening so guys listen to the daily zeitgeist on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free